It's Saturday, the 24th of April, 2004. This is Glenn Zuckman at the LA Times Festival of Books at UCLA with author Iris Chang. The winner of numerous prestigious awards, Iris Chang is the author of Thread of the Silkworm, 1995, The Rape of Nanking, 1997, and published last year and published a few weeks ago in paperback, The Chinese in America, A Narrative History. Iris Chang, welcome to Strange Angels. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. The Chinese in America, a narrative history. How did you conceive of such a monumental project? <laughs> I have to admit, it was pretty challenging to write the book. It's an epic 150-year saga of the Chinese American immigrant experience. Um, you know, for years, I really wanted to write an honest history of my people. And I felt there had always been an absence of that kind of information in school textbooks. And there are several excellent histories on the Chinese American experience, but they were out of date. I mean, they were published decades ago. So it evolved over time, but I really started writing in earnest um, after The Rape of Nanking was released, and it took me at least three years of research and writing. And the result is, uh, you know, a narrative that is about between four to five hundred pages long. And I, I'm really trying to, you know, compress a lot of information while also highlighting some of the major themes in my book, themes that pertain to human rights and civil liberties. So these three books obviously have something to do with the Chinese. But in addition to that or beyond that, is there any other thread that you see coming Absolutely. through these three books? Absolutely. They're all about injustice and power and the struggle of individuals against the tyranny of power. Um, and I began to be aware of these themes as they were gr evolving and, and growing out of my books. And I, th you know, with, with, for example, Thread of the Silkworm, that's the story of uh, Dr. Tsien Hushen, a brilliant Caltech uh, professor of aerodynamics who was then falsely accused of being a communist and a spy and kind of put through this you know, bureaucratic limbo in the 1950s for five years, and then eventually secretly swapped for some pilots who'd been shot down during the Korean War and sent back to China, where he then became the father of the PRC missile program, including the Silkworm missile program. And that's really the story of one man's struggle against the, the power of the, you know, military-industrial complex in both the United States and in China, because he had to go through the second time as he was developing the missile program there. And then The Rape of Nanking is another story that involves the effect of power on a defenseless city when the Japanese Imperial Army raped, tortured, and murdered hundreds of thousands of helpless Chinese civilians in uh, the former capital of China, which was then the city of Nanking. And, you know, the rape of Nanking really was very much a story about uh, what, one of the worst atrocities in, in human history. It was the w single worst mass rape in world history at that time. And it was just one small fraction of the murders and the crimes against humanity that the Japanese army committed against both you know, China and many other Asian neighbors during World War II. We're talking an estimated 19 to 35 million Chinese dying as a result of this Japanese invasion during World War II. And this third book, uh, The Chinese in America, A Narrative History, describes how every generation of Chinese Americans in this country had to struggle for their civil liberties and their rights and freedoms. And in doing so, they made tremendous contributions to this country, but also laid down the foundation of civil rights law in the U.S. There's a, there's 
quite a spectacular quotation that you have at the beginning of the last chapter of the book, chapter 20, An Uncertain Future, that perhaps sums up both the pros and the cons of that adventure. Governor Gary Locke of Washington State, the first Chinese-American governor in the United States, a 2003 quotation. He said, my grandfather came to this country from China nearly a century ago and worked as a servant. Now I serve as governor just one mile from where my grandfather worked. It took our family 100 years to travel that mile. It was a voyage we could only make in America. Is that sort of the, <laughs> the, the plus and minus of it all? In, in Absolutely. And I mean, I, and I it really, and I call it uncertain future because we don't really know how this journey will end up. But what I've learned is really the nature of, of the Chinese-American immigrant experience has been a cyclical one. Sometimes they've experienced, uh, you know, great racial acceptance. Other times they've experienced mass murder and, and even genocide in, in the United States. And I've been, I would really wanted to explore why at certain times they were vilified and killed. So it wasn't just racial. Often these were, there were specific, you know, political and economic reasons why they were mistreated. But uh, I really wanted to emphasize that this is an ongoing struggle. That's why the last chapter of the book is called An Uncertain Future. And it's very much about the fragility of our American democratic experiment and how really how we as Americans and our descendants and our and their descendants are going to have to continue that struggle as a result of the struggle we Americans now enjoy many of the privileges of U.S. citizenship that I think most of us take for granted for example I don't think many people are aware of the fact that the whole concept of birthright citizenship was reinforced by um, a Chinese-American lawsuit, Wong Kim Ark versus U.S. Uh, when Wong Kim Ark was an American-born Chinese who went to China to visit his parents when he came back. This is during the height of the exclusion era. Hmm. They wouldn't let him in. And they tried to claim he wasn't a U.S. citizen because he was racially Asian. He was, you know, and they were trying to classify him as a foreign Chinese national on the basis of his race. And so this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which then ruled that every person who's born in the U.S., regardless of race, regardless of whether your parents or ancestors were eligible for citizenship is a U.S. citizen. And it's a very important ruling because in other countries to this day, like in Germany or Japan, a person's citizenship is determined by the citizenship of, of one's ancestors. And that leads to sometimes the creation of a permanent foreign underclass in a country where, like, for example, in Japan, there are generations of people who are considered Korean, even though they were born in Japan, uh, you know, and had lived in Japan for, for generations, but they're considered foreigners. So in, in this country, we have, we have Wong Kim Ark versus U.S. to safeguard these rights. But even now, you know, uh, after 9-11. I was going to say, does the Patriot Act have some sort of provision that there was, strips Well, there was, a propo there was proposed legislation to strip our U.S. citizenship if we're seen as being somehow subversive or seen as, you know, aiding uh, terrorists. And, and what I'm trying to say is that this really challenges the concept of birthright citizenship. And it just goes to show that it doesn't really matter what your race is, that these rights and privileges are not things we should take for granted. Every generation has to struggle for them to be watchful and vigilant in protecting them. I read The Rape of Nanking, I guess, about four years ago when we met, and again this week. Um, it doesn't get any easier to get through. This 60-year-old tragedy and, and atrocity, there's really a second rape that you talk about. 
And that was the rape of history. And that was the rampant Japanese denials of this atrocity and, and, and the insistence by certain groups in Japan that, that, that none of this happened in the first place. Um, this is hardly unique. I mean, we have, for example, you know, to this day, the Turkish government denying the validity and the existence of the Armenian genocide. We have a lot of other atrocities across world history that are being suppressed. And, you know, one of my missions as an author is really to prevent these events from fading into oblivion. Because if we don't learn from the, our history, if we don't learn from the mistakes of the past, we will repeat them in the future. And so um, so the rape of Nanking was really my attempt to prevent this horrible atrocity from being forgotten. I first decided to write it when I saw some of the photographs of, of these women who had been, you know, dismembered and raped and tortured. And, and, and I was just shocked at the magnitude of this horror. You know, hundreds of thousands of, of people killed. And, you know, this was like greater than the entire civilian death toll of, of like three European countries combined for all of World War II. And yet that was just a small fraction of what Japan did in, uh, in China, which was to kill, you know, some 19 to 35 million civilians. And so I just kept thinking to myself, if I had been born maybe 60 years earlier, I mean, I could have been one of those victims. And the idea that maybe people would then not care or perhaps even deny that this ever happened, that was pretty upsetting for me to, to envision. So that's that's how I decided to write The Rape of Nanking. And in the book, you contrast Germany's response to World War II events versus Japan's. Right. And, and they've taken a bit of a different... Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Germans have paid billions of dollars in reparations to their victims. Japan has paid close to nothing. Uh, Germany has built monuments to commemorate the victims of Holocaust and museums. And Japan actually has quite the opposite. They've got Class A war criminals enshrined in the Yasukuni Shrine in Japan where they're being worshipped as deities. I mean, this is like the moral equivalent of moving statues of Hitler and his cronies into the biggest cathedral in Berlin and, and worshipping them as gods. And perhaps worst of all, um, the Japanese Ministry of Education continues to censor accounts of, of, of its war crimes in, in school textbooks. In Germany, it is against the law not to teach the history of the Holocaust in the schools. In Japan, the Ministry of Education has actively thwarted the efforts of Japanese progressives and liberals, who have who, educators who are trying to make sure that these crimes are, are in the textbooks, and, they, and they, they're, fighting, they're, they're just hitting a stone wall. And I know, at least in Japan, your book was controversial six years ago. Had oh, things- to the point where the, the Japanese publishing house got death threats when, when they tried to publish this book. Has, has anything changed in the ensuing six years? Well, um, I, I continue to be denounced there. And there have been sometimes mass mailings of Japanese propaganda denying that any of this ever happened to like universities and archives. And I mean, people are sometimes receiving stacks and stacks of these anti-Irish Chang books and being asked to kind of pass them out. <laughs> so, um, and there have been entire conferences. So both conferences. officially and in terms of the general public knowledge, it's it's not different there six years later. Well, I think that many more people are aware of what I have said, but there's there's a great deal of hostility. So, um, but certainly, uh, Japan is really the only country where I have received these kinds of attacks. I mean, the, the book has received rave reviews, you know, worldwide, but it's only in Japan 
hasn't been terribly controversial. So I do hope one day The Rape of Nanking will be made available in Japanese, even if it has to be published in the United States, translated in Japanese, and maybe shipped through Amazon.com, where, you know, where people cannot retaliate against the distributors there. I mean, you know, The Last Emperor, uh, the movie, the Bertolucci movie, had a segment of film footage on The Rape of Nanking. And um, the distributors there in Japan, you know, took it out without his permission and even told the press that it was his idea. I mean, so there's a great deal of self-censorship that occurs in Japan. So now that we're here six decades later, what is the the contemporary Japanese responsibility? Well, I think it has to be to, the responsibility should be to acknowledge what happened. And I'll tell you, this continues to make news. The Japanese Prime Minister, Koizumi, has in recent years continued to make visits to the Yasukuni Shrine, where those Class A war criminals are being worshipped as gods. And China, for years along with other Asian countries like Korea, have protested this. I mean, I I was once asked to speak at Nightline because a number of Korean activists had cut their little fingers off in protest when the the prime minister made his visit. And and the PRC and and other countries have denounced it. But, you know, recently, just a few weeks ago, China did something that that went beyond just complaining about it. When Koizumi made his visit to the Yasukuni Shrine, the People's Republic of China canceled Japan's bid for this high-speed rail project in China, and it's very lucrative. I mean, I I think it could be like it's it's a multi-billion dollar project, and they gave the contract away to uh, France instead. So so there's been economic repercussions for Japan. I don't think that China would have done this years ago when they were more concerned about Japan's political support. But now this is a sign of the growing confidence of the People's Republic of China, economically and politically. Now, the United States certainly has a uh, you know less than stellar history of, uh, of events with other people, uh, Native Americans certainly, and, and perhaps others. What responsibility do you and I as American citizens have for for that history? I think that at minimum we have to make sure that this history is told accurately in history textbooks and that it's not whitewashed and and, and um, you know swept under the rug and I think that it would be nice if the purveyors of popular culture would show some responsibility to for you know presenting these accurately. I mean, for many years, Hollywood films have depicted Native Americans as just creatures to be you know like shot at and exterminated. You know, certainly in our Western movies, and that is definitely that is not. Although that uh, has evolved a bit of late, hasn't it? I it think. has. It has. But for many years, we had our own mythologies. Do you know, have the, have the classrooms, American classrooms, sort of caught up with that history? I mean, when I was in high school, it was certainly a different story. I hope so. I have not done a systematic survey of what's happening across America, and perhaps I should. But um, I, th- I think that they're a little more sensitive now uh, about having a multicultural curriculum. But it's, I think still that a lot of work needs to be done. We live in this world of sort of ever more protracted, nuanced shades of gray. Do you believe that there is such a thing as truth? There is, I think. um, I I think that there is a truth, but we all have different perspectives of it. And it it is an ever-continual struggle that we must undergo 
to get closer and closer to what that truth is. It is a search. It is a process and a journey. That it's not something that we could just proclaim often as being true, but but rather we have theories and hypotheses that we would then hold up and be subject to maybe verification. So there is no often one specific truth that somebody can proclaim if without evidence it is it is always something that should be subject to scrutiny and and also tested in the marketplace of ideas for individuals and, and in terms of individual responsibility and, and not to pick on politicians but i mean whether it's bill clinton with monica Lewinsky or, or reagan with iran contra or you know teddy kennedy with chappaquiddick i mean are those defining moments for those individuals? Defining moments for those individuals and for our society, because I think that when when a crisis like this happens, we, the American people, are entitled to have full disclosure from the government regarding their, their, their behavior and actions. That's the responsibility that they have undertaken when they stepped in those positions. And uh, the survival of our democracy will depend on, in part, on education and, and, and reliance on public uh, information information and access to that information. According to the research on the subject, the greatest cause for atrocities or, or for government abuse of power is really the concentration of power itself in the hands of an elite. That no particular race, religion, or political philosophy or nationality makes a group of people more likely to commit these human rights atrocities than others. But whenever you have a group that has too much unchecked and absolute power, that group will inevitably commit atrocities both at home and abroad and initiate war with their neighbors. Whether, That's what, whether it's a late 20th century America exactly. or an early 20th century Japan. That is what the empirical evidence has shown. So uh, knowing that, uh, the research has also shown that in order to make our society safer, you must diffuse power through a true democracy. And some of the forces that diffuse power include education, because you're in essence returning power to the people when you when you educate them about what the government is doing, uh, it also involves other you know tactics like passive resistance or active intervention or, or active engagement uh, with the government if you know if if there are policies that that seem to be unjust that people have to be uh, actively involved on a grassroots level to constantly monitor the the activities of the of its leaders. I would really suggest that people uh, look at some of the work of like R.J. Rummel, who's a world expert on genocide on, on and, and other um, books, for example, on conflict resolution, because like the, the role of power really is lethal when it comes to why certain conditions are in play that would lead to atrocities and some conditions are not. Does that concern you with America's sort of preeminence in, in, in the world today? And I, I am concerned in that, you know, in recent years, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. has emerged as really the dominant superpower. Uh, China is now, you know, a distant second. And at the same time, not only have we had this great power, but within the United States, we've also seen a great concentration of power within the media, with f- fewer and fewer capitalists having greater and greater uh, control of the of media outlets. We also see a tremendous consolidation of power within our uh, government and a, a greater... Um, how shall I say it, you know, uh, trend towards secrecy of, of, you know, of the government wanting to shield 
its activities f- from public glare, but but uh, but while also trying to penetrate the private lives of its own citizens. We've seen this with the Patriot Act and also with the proposed sequel. All of that, of course, is dangerous. And I, I think that my book, The Chinese in America, pretty much has shown how there were different times in U.S. history where during an economic or political crisis we, ha- we would see this kind of concentration of power. And we, we have to learn, draw from the lessons of history to, um, to try to resolve the conflicts of today and tomorrow. We've said a few words about truth. Do you, do you believe in forgiveness? Absolutely. It is such an important and healing process, but it is, it is something that requires uh, an act of, of faith from both the perpetrator of, of war crimes and the victims. Forgiveness tends to happen when there is an, like a sincere effort on the part of the perpetrators to make amends. And when that doesn't happen, it is much harder for victims to, to, to bring closure to these horrific events. And I, I really would love to see Japan uh, make an honest, clean break with the past by acknowledging the war crimes, by educating its children about these atrocities, and ensuring you know that, that they will not happen again. And and until that happens, it's going to be really hard for the, f- the process of forgiveness to begin. There is so little information taught about the Sino-Japanese War or even all of World War II in Japanese public schools that, you know, some, some people who have spent time teaching in Japan have reported that sometimes students are baffled when they find out that the U.S. and, China, the US and Japan were ever at war. And sometimes their first question is, which side won? I'm a fan of the old modernist notion of the ascent of humankind. And for my read, I, I think there's been an upward trajectory, but certainly that trajectory, if it exists, has, has been marred by numerous tragedies and atrocities, uh, the rape of Nanking being one sort of extraordinary one. Do you think we're advancing, and do you think there would ever be a day when those things don't happen, or does entropy sort of say that, that something tragic is, is always Personally, be part of the mix. I believe we're living in more dangerous times than ever. Don't forget, we now have the technological capacity to exterminate the human race with nuclear weapons. So the stakes are much larger. And I don't think the human behavior has really evolved much beyond what it had been since cavemen times. So we, we have civilization, but the veneer of that civilization is exceedingly thin. If anything, I think that you know while there's much more attempts to try to bring about peace, that the reality is that there, the numbers of people who have died during wars, you know, or being murdered by their own governments has increased, because the technological means to perpetrate mass murder has increased, but basic human nature has stayed the same. So I think we do need to try to evolve towards this upward trajectory, as you mentioned, because if we don't, it may mean the end of not just civilization, but our species as we know it. Well, and, and in fact, the, uh, you know, the old horrors of sort of nuclear, biological and chemical warfare, which are, we, I call them old, obviously, they're still with us. But it seems that, you know, the, the genetic nanotechnology, robotic technology, that those are sort of the new uh, double edged swords of, of this new century. Unquestionably and, so. And these technologies, while they all have the potential to bring us 
great good for our society also have the potential to to um, bring destruction and great harm. I mean, in my first book, Threat of the Silkworm, many of the early creators of the U.S. missile program and the space program were rocket enthusiasts who really s- fantasized about space travel and space exploration. They These were scientists with ideals, but the money for this project, these projects, especially during World War II, came from from the U.S. government, and it, it was the beginning of the of the major growth, the U.S. military industrial complex, and um, and it's been this constant struggle in, in my first book, Thread of the Silkworm, uh, between scientific brain power and and military power to try to control that. So I mean, and you, we see how it gets played out in a single life. So um, and so, like you'll see too, in my second book, like there's always these dynamic forces that are posing each other. Like in the rape of Nanking, while you also had the Japanese military that was bent on destroying hundreds of thousands of lives, we also had those American missionaries who who risked their own lives to create a safety zone in the, in the center of the city to try to save people. And they were a very effective counterforce because they probably rescued some 300,000 Chinese refugees. So again, the, you know, the theme of power, the machinery power, but also the struggle of individuals against that. So it's been a very powerful theme in my work. Well, and, and certainly, you know, there's always that, that terrifying tendency to, to stereotype, which leads to, to racism. And yet, uh, one, of, one of the heroes of the, the rape of Nanking is a, is a Nazi party leader. And, and, you know, so, I mean, I think we great, also... To my great surprise, yes, that's right. Yes, that, that we, you know, also stereotype Nazis in this one way. And here's a man who clearly, you know, if we had just looked at, at his label would have read him completely wrong as well. So, in these times of crisis, I often think that all the titles of the veneer of civilization get stripped away. So, the basic characters, our basic impulses are revealed. And you'll see some people are by nature uh, heroes, and then some of them are, are not. They are cowards, or they are. And, and we, we see the full spectrum of human behavior in, uh, in, in all of my books. So with the Chinese in America, we, we see not only the great contributions the Chinese made, but also how they had to struggle against these forces of prejudice, or even mass violence against them. So, I mean, all of these books have to do with the brutal struggle for people to survive and, and, and struggle against power. What does it mean to be an American? I think to be an American means living in this very fragile democratic experiment. This country was founded on a certain set of ideals that all men are created equal. Also that we are all entitled to certain unalienable rights, that of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's also, uh, you know, a country that was founded on the principle that we would have certain safeguards to protect the rights of the minority against the tyranny of the majority. We have had these ideals. They are codified in our Constitution and Bill of Rights. But uh, the actual practice of these ideals, it's been uh, difficult often over time. It's certainly ironic when, the, when those, when those right. noble words were written, they actually applied to almost no one. Right. In fact, many of the authors of these documents themselves owned slaves. They didn't see these privileges ex- extending to women or non-landowners. So 
I think America, the story of America, is really the journey of trying to evolve towards these these basic rights. And we could see it's been a rocky journey. And in fact, living up to the true meaning of and our not creed. only and not only do things not, not always get better, they sometimes get worse. And that every generation is going to have to struggle to preserve them. And that democracy is not something that we just inherit from our ancestors. Nor could it be just imposed upon other countries. It really requires the active participation of the people, and it's going to have to happen with every generation because as you know our our time on this planet is short and you think about it, every 80 years or so the world's going to be populated with entirely different people and if you think about it in that context during that 80 years there's going to be a ruthless struggle as the world's power and capital is transferred from one set of hands to another there are always people who will try to to preserve the power of the elite for the progeny. But it doesn't always work that way. And it's so every generation of people, every generation is going to have to going to have to confront these basic challenges to their civil liberties and human rights, not just in the United States but around the globe. And I think that as an author, um, one of my my hopes is that in my brief lifetime, because we're all here for just for a flicker of time, that I will help serve as a bridge between the past and the present, that I will help preserve some of the stories of our age and these struggles so that future generations can benefit from them. Writing and, and researching, uh, I imagine, is a lot about alone time at a keyboard or in a library. It's a very solitary profession. And then promoting these books with these whirlwind book tours and conferences and signings and radio interviews and panels. And those seem almost opposite kinds of experiences. And, and Indeed. What's, what's that bizarre amalgam of, of lifestyles well, like for you? Well, it's physically exhausting. I mean, just getting on airplanes. And if anyone goes to my website, like www.irischeng.net, they'll see just how intense that the tour that I've been on has been uh, because I've been moving at the rate of about a city a day. And and it's it's hard. I mean, you have to you have to get up early, and then you have to uh, be dressed and presentable, and actually <laughs> sound articulate. <laughs> and, and You're well, doing a great job, by well, the way. Well, thank you. You're very kind. <laughs> and often in just a few hours of sleep, just sometimes two or three hours of sleep a night. And and you also have to look presentable for for cameras, but you also have to answer some very you know. Um, important and challenging questions. Uh, and, and so you have to do this from early morning to night, day after day. And um, it, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, I, I just had lunch with some several other authors, you know, while I was on the road, and they were all on tour, too. And all of us actually were sick. We, uh, and I, I, I was very fortunate to have caught a cold, you know, and, and recovered from that on a weekend when there were no events. So I just hope that I'll be able to keep up this pace in the future. You know, every tour, I think, for me just gets a little bit harder as I get a little Do, do you enjoy mixing the touring with the writing, or, or no, you could I, do without the touring? I can't get the writing done during the tour. But I find that I enjoy writing. But then when I go on a tour, it's almost like either it's completely solitary and I'm, I'm, I'm just writing and I don't have as much social contact. And then I'm thrown into this other extreme where I'm socializing all the time. And, and, and that's not so bad. I, I, I think that as long as these tours happen periodically and it's not all the time, I, I, could, I could handle it. And I, I, like, I like meeting new people. I, I really f- I find it stimulating. I, I, but I think that it would be very hard if I had to do this full-time, the way many, for example, politicians have to do this, where they, they are just pumping you know, flesh and going to the, you know, the rubber chicken dinners every night. That would be really hard. I do need some time 
to meditate, to retreat, to retreat uh, into my private world and to, to think and contemplate on these issues, to do my research and, and to write. And I, I need that space and that independence. What's next for you? I have several book ideas that I'm going to pursue, and it may be premature to make an announcement, but I am very much interested in starting work on my fourth book as I, after I finish this story. Have, have you sort of started one yet? Or yes, you kind I, of, have. So, I have. So you know which one you're yeah. pursuing. But yeah, it's, in fact, it's, I'm very eager to get to it, actually. As soon as this tour is over? That's right. Well, when we met, I guess it was four years ago, I, I thought that the, the Chinese in America was a rather monumental project <laughs> that I couldn't believe <laughs> that you were actually undertaking. So, um, Well, I'm, I'm glad it's finished. Congratulations and, on thank that. You, thank and, you. It, and, was, it was quite a journey for me. And, and, and uh, every, you know, every book is different, and you grow with every book. So I'm very grateful for the experience that has shaped me as an author. It's, it's been an eye-opener. It's really, I've essentially written a history of the United States, but as seen through the perspective of one immigrant group and their descendants. And so, I mean, it just has opened my eyes to stories I had no concept of before. I, for example, I didn't know that one in five Chinese Americans had served in the armed forces during World War II. I mean, I don't think there was any other ethnic group that served in such, with, gave such high percentages to military service. Yet, yeah, that's not what we think of when we think of, uh, you know, the, the American soldier during World War II. I didn't know that the Chinese invented, like, the birth control pill powdered milk or pioneered the citrus industry in addition to creating the you know the transcontinental railroad i mean we think of the chinese as often being the nobel laureates the, you know that's high tech and scientific um experts but there's just that's just scratching the surface of their contributions to this country and their contributions to civil rights rights law how like they really laid down the foundation for uh for for the civil rights movement because of their tradition of litigation and fighting for their rights, you know, in the 19th century. Iris Chang, thanks for visiting Strange Angels. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.